You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Linda Abar. Linda is a proverbial Jill of all trades who wears many hats, including entrepreneur, author, and marketing manager. Raised in the high bridge section of the Bronx, Linda dreamed of becoming a fashion designer since the age of five and developed an interest in yoga and DJing at the age of 11. By her early 20s, she began collaborating on different entertainment projects as a DJ. And having developed a following in the Latin community, she joined Lo Maximo Productions, an entertainment media company as their head of administration and marketing coordinator. In addition to working in the entertainment business, Linda has also used her knowledge and skill set to help hundreds of families remain in the U.S. legally. But after being terminated from a law firm in 2019, she knew she had to broaden her horizons, which included turning her home into an event space. To date, Linda has authored four books and she's created the ABAR Project Internship Program, which provides hands-on experience to high school students in areas such as graphic design and front-end coding. Now, I told you all she was a Jill of all trades. So without further ado, here's her story. Linda, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I am great. How are you? Good. So happy to have you. So it's funny, you know, we were kind of talking before and no matter how much we plan for these things, there's like always something to work through. Uh, We had two links in the calendar invite. So you were on one link. I was on the other. It happens. But I appreciate your patience and just your good spirit on this Saturday morning. Um, You you know, as you mentioned, it's always a lot trying to do pursue your passions when you actually have a day job as well. So you spend your weekends working on one thing and then your weekdays working on another. So it's always good when people come with good energy and are just game for whatever. I got to reciprocate it back. That's the only way we grow. (laughs) Absolutely. So looking forward to this conversation also because I love a good uh, Jill of all trades and you've got a lot of different talents. Uh, So let's get into it. Who is Linda Abar? So I like to describe Linda Abar as Abar Talks, Linda Listens. Um, I go by everything Abar. That's the name of my uh, company and my brand. And I do a little bit of everything from legal in uh, immigration to forces, taxes, as a notary public as well. I serve the community in my area and most of the people in my culture when it comes to immigration. Besides that, I have a whole marketing department where I do um, website designs, uh, graphic designs, interior design, coding, and so much more. I have four books. I paint. Um, I, I'm a private chef. I cook. And I think I'm probably forgetting a couple of things, but everything a part. <laughs> Sounding real Caribbean right now with all these different... Uh... Thank you. <laughs> different roles you're playing. So let's talk about that a little bit more. The whole A-Bar Talks, Linda Listens. How do you explain further the duality of your personality, right? Because some people are like, oh, I'm a great listener. And some people are like, I could talk, girl. But you seem like you sort of have both. And how do those roles sort of manifest in your life and the work that you do? So about in 2018, I started I got really intrigued in the brain after reading um, this book called My Stroke of Insight. And I started studying cognitive behavior and neuroscience. 
And I've noticed that throughout my entire life, I've always, always, always studied human behavior because humans are just interesting. So I pick up a lot on energy. And when it comes to an individual that's just, you can, I can feel like when you're overwhelmed that you're trying to vent and you want to express yourself. And I know that those are, those are very emotional times where I need to be quiet and just listen to the person. So I'll decipher the situation versus if they want to be heard or they want me to talk. Because I also uh, offer um, cognitive behavioral, I'm, I'm sorry, CBT talk over here in my place. And um, it's an opportunity where I create this setting to make people vulnerable. And I, I just have a lot of people that are always coming to me for advice. So I create a setting for them to feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable, to speak about whatever emotional issues they're dealing with. And either I sit there and listen, sometimes I've cried with my clients, um, or I just talk to them or play music because I like to use hip hop as a form of um, medicine. Got it. So, and we know that you also are a retired DJ. Um, so we'll, <laughs> we'll get into that <laughs> as well. But, you know, it's, you meet a lot of people in, in New York, especially in like this NYC metropolitan area who have a lot of different hustles, right? And it's it's part of the culture, the grind culture. People really um, do it for different reasons and they have different drivers. But often it's born out of necessity as opposed to like, oh, I'm just interested in all of these things. So give me a little bit of your backstory. Like who was Linda as a child and a teenager and how did you evolve into this person who has many talents and many facets to her personality? Okay, so I want to say it started when I was five years old. I fell in love with art and I would always see my two older cousins drawing or sketching. And from that moment, since up until I want to say I was 16, I always said I was going to be a fashion designer. But I always envisioned myself as this businesswoman. And at the same time, I went to Catholic school for most of my life. Um, in high school, our motto was um, Servium, is to serve. So one of the, when people actually, I didn't answer your question earlier like this, but when people ask me, what do I do? I either started or ended with the first thing on my everything A bar is that I'm a servant to God. So I work with people and I've known that since I was little that people are, it's just my thing. And when I turned 11, I got into probably, that's when probably my career really, really started. That's when I started hustling in school. I was actually in public school from fourth to six. So I was selling shampoo bottles. I would, my mom worked in a hotel and anytime I would go to the bathroom, I would just like smell all the different shampoos and conditioners. And I started just making my own potion. So I'll take out the, she'll bring, she'll have like little bottles from the hotel and I'll just make a whole bunch of them and bring them to school. And I'll sell them to my friends for like a dollar or something. That same year, I also got into yoga because I was in an acting program called VIP. And they took us on a day retreat to downtown to a yoga studio. And I fell in love with it. And ever since I started doing yoga, I became a yogi. I became self-taught because I couldn't afford the classes. And that was also the same year I was in an art school painting. And when I fell in love with DJing, there was my parents will always go to a social club on the weekend. It was called Trenta de Marzo. And Friday through Sunday, we were always there. So I would always see this guy on Saturdays that he was like in the Latin music um, radio station here in New York. And I would just watch him go up there and play with CDs. And I'm like, wow, this is so cool. And I'll sit there. And one day he's like, Yo, you want to learn? And I was like, sure. So he he showed me the ropes. Eventually he left. 
And then over the years, um, another DJ came and whenever uh, there was like a Saturday that the club wasn't doing anything, I'll host a team party or I'll I'll host um I'll start DJing the party for the elders just because I just love music so much. And my father embedded like old folk music from Dominican Republic. Eventually, after I retired, that's when I had to do my research in hip hop and I'll confess something. I, for the life of me, just because I grew up without, um, I grew up in an era where we didn't have internet or it was, it'll take 10 hours for something to download. I didn't know Nat King Cole was black. <laughs> Get <laughs> out of here. thought Frank Sinatra was black and Nat King Cole was black. But little did I know over the course of years during my own research, I was like, oh my God, I did not know this. But it became really interesting to me. So I, you know, I, I swapped over from being in the Latin industry to the hip hop industry. And that's kind of actually where I currently stand. Um, at least with marketing, I still do behind the scenes. I'm trying to get into production. So it's been a course of just being interested in so many different things in my life. And that's what has led to everything. Abor. Yes. So, and we're definitely going to get into everything a bar, but I took a look at your, your website and your you. story <laughs> And what I found incredibly interesting is how, so you mentioned the Dominican Republic, but if you look at your website and your family's origin, you're able to date back well before your family landed in the Dominican Republic. So where does this rich family history come from? Because many of us who are minorities, we can trace back to a point, but then there's often this just black hole where we don't know, right? What precedes that. And looking at the dates on your your bio, how has this family history really been preserved? Honestly, Ancestry.com. I've mm. always, since I, since I was little, I always found my last name to be different. It's, it's, I'd never heard of A-Bar. At least now, you know, we know there's like baseball players and stuff. And on Ancestry.com, we came across a thread that they were um, referencing and trying to find out, you know, more information about the A-Bar last name. And somewhat, there were so many different stories, like very minimal, but it was like a list of like 20 to 30 stories. And they provided so many information about what they knew as a A-bar in their last name. And that's how I was able to find out that our last name goes back to the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm. And we're from the um, tribes of uh, Dan and Manasseh. And I found that super intriguing. I recently actually about, I think I want to say a week or two ago, someone from Australia reached out to me, uh, telling me, I think we're cousins. <laughs> so I don't know if we're cousins, but we're, we're like, I have a cousin in Australia. <laughs> wow. So, okay. So you have all this family history. And then if we continue to walk down, uh, down your family line, we get to Nancy Abar. Tell me who which Nancy one? Abar was. Well, the one that is in your bio, which I presume is your grandmother, okay. right? So yes. now you're your sister, but your grandmother, let's start there. Yes. So my grandmother, she um, she is the last. I actually never got to meet her because she passed away in a car accident, and my dad was only sixteen. Mm-hmm. I like to call her the the first A bar, and I like to reference myself as the last A bar, being that I'm a female. My dad only had three girls. The last name I won't be able to pass it down, which is one of the reasons why I branded it. Um, but Nancy, uh, I, I we learned so little, and unfortunately, my aunt passed away from COVID this year. She's mm-hmm. the one that knew more. According to my dad, my aunt had told him that our last, our, I want to say two generations before hers, we were in Greece. So wow. <laughs> it goes from Israel to Greece in some, in that black hole that you mentioned earlier. And um, it's interesting because 
as a young, you know, when we're younger, we don't really know about who our parents truly are or about their history. And they become more vulnerable as you get older and they feel more confident and they start sharing things. So there were stories that I thought I knew about her that I actually didn't, or at least my parents lied to me just to cover up certain things. But it's interesting because um, my dad was unfortunately a bastard child. And um, these were just the times of of Dominican Republic. There, you know, it was the times of Trujillo. And it's, it's weird because when I think about the, the years that these things were occurring, um, there's racism in DR. And at the same time, there's racism, there was racism happening here in the United States. And I just find it like hypocritical sometimes when I speak to certain Dominicans because some, respectfully, some of them are really ignorant. But it's, you know, it's just biased information because they're, they're enclosed to a certain mentality. And, um, my dad, you know, he suffered a lot just because his, he was dark skinned. So mm. he was bullied and, um, you know, being a bastard child, you know, certain things like God really aligns certain things in life. So when, um, his mom passed away, he ended up, you know, growing with his dad and living with his dad. Most of his years, he grew up with his dad, but he was raised by another woman. Um, and he was bullied for being black. And I didn't learn that until probably, I want to say like about two, three years ago. Mm. So how do you think, you know, it's, it's funny you should bring this up because I always say like, as you get older, you really get to see your parents. And if you're fortunate to have them, your grandparents for who they really are and how their experience shaped them. And we don't necessarily have that data as children because we're kids, right? But as you become an adult and as they start to trickle, the stories start to trickle out or you learn things on your own, or you just become a mature person who has insight and you start to say, okay, I get some of the reasons why you may act the way that you do. But do you think your father's upbringing, losing his mother so early, then going with his father being raised by this other woman, do you think any of that influenced how he raised his family? A hundred percent. If there's one thing my dad embedded in us is that, especially when we were little, he will always pull out um, the wedding album with him and my mom and show us, do you see yourself in this picture? No, right? You need to start your own family. Mm. That was his guidance when it came to dating. And he was very strict on that. I was, my dad is super military style. So mm. I grew up with that discipline in my household. And um, my dad always made sure to put family first. It doesn't matter. He would even always, I don't know if he was saying it jokingly, but I know in matrimony, you're always going to have these back and forth and conflicts. But he always made sure to tell us, if I ever leave your mom, I will never have any more kids. Like his family is his priority and he made sure that we knew that growing up, like they would not let us sleep over anybody's house. If they were invited to a wedding, we had to come. Otherwise they were not going to attend. But my dad really made sure that what he didn't have, he gave to us. There's one thing that my father's really structured in is family. And my, my middle sister is disabled. She suffers from slow mental development and also from epilepsy. He is right on when it comes like he has his flaws, but my sister, we have to worry zero about her falling from a seizure or anything because he is there at 7 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. giving her her pills in the evening as well. And I honestly, I take off my hat to him because of that. So I, I have found that when a parent has experienced that level of, let's call it what it is, trauma, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's funny because... I've had this conversation with friends. It's how it was in my house. Like you cannot sleep over any and everybody's house. Like 
your home. And it's because of what they've witnessed and what they may have experienced, even if they're not telling you. It's about keeping their kids safe. Um, But you mentioned, we'll call them coping mechanisms, right? Alcoholism, all that stuff is often a way to to mask the wounds that, that really didn't have a chance to heal properly. So I find it interesting that you had this militant father and who was there for his family and was all about that family unit, but who was battling his own demons as well. But now you're into CBT and giving people an open space to talk. So where does that come from? Because I presume that these open conversations were not necessarily happening in your house. Is that correct? Not at all. There were, like I said earlier, there were very, there were very few things that my dad told me about my grandmother that it was within the last five years, I actually got the full truth. And I don't even know if I still have the full truth because it's like, I thought it was like this. And now you're telling me like that. And I I honestly don't like to open those conversations, at least in the me personally. I don't I wouldn't want to open that conversation because I don't know where it's going to take you. And I'm very considerate about the environment we're in, especially to bring up a conversation like that. Um, I'm conscious of like, you know, how it could affect the other person. But when it comes to my father and talk therapy, that is a lost case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's a lost case because, you know, it, it's like they say, you can't teach a, a old dog new tricks. And um, he, I don't feel like, I I don't know. And I pray to God, maybe one day I will. I don't know if he'll ever tell me his full story. I don't know if he thinks I will be able to handle it. But um, he'll listen probably for like five, three minutes. He'll go ahead and support me and, and tell somebody else to listen to her. But when it comes to his personal issues that's only something he'll be able to heal himself. And I don't know what it would take to get there. But the only thing I really have in my hands when it comes to at least my dad is prayer. That's the only thing I have. So where do you think your openness comes from and an ability to share and to talk about your own experience, but also be that for other people as well when you were not socialized that way growing up? Hmm, Well, actually, I wouldn't say that I wasn't. All right. So my dad has one brother, and that's mm-hmm. as far as his uh, family line goes. My mother has 24. There's. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mom... <laughs> I guess I'll say it again. My mom has 24 brothers and sisters. 12 of them were from my, were with my grandmother, and some of them were from my grand, her father's er, earlier marriage, and then the rest were out of wedlock. And some of the ones that were out of wedlock, my grandmother, he brought, my grandfather brought them to my grandmother and said, hey, here's my son. You got to raise him. Yeah. And they became like my grandmother's kids. So there's two of them that they're my uncles, but they're my, my mother's stepbrothers. Mm. And it's interesting because it's like, yeah, I, again, I've heard, I've heard new stories when it comes down to my mother's line, family line. And it's just like, wow, I didn't know that either. <laughs> And it's interesting. We've we've always been very social, family oriented because of my mother's side. Um, My mother has 24 brothers and sisters, but then her aunts, she has two aunts and an uncle and they all had like 14 kids too. So our family is just huge. And even like growing up dating, I had to be careful because I (laughs) I caught cousins like on the internet who did not know each other. And I'm like, oh, you guys know you are cousins. And they're like, no, why? She's too hot. Like, that's not, I'm like, okay, so is our family ugly? <laughs> but um, interestingly, I've always, I've really been social because I've always been curious. I always okay. want to know why. But I feel like um, my growing up with 
So my, my middle sister, me and her are Irish twins. She was, we were born months apart. And if there's one thing, my mother used to dress us like as twins. And um, it wasn't until she was like 11, I'll say, that she started suffering from epilepsy and having seizures. And it really, really affected her brain and her, her learning skills. That right there made me realize when I started studying the brain that I always had a subject of experiment next to me my entire life of what's normal as in myself and being cognitive and what's abnormal in a disability. And um, that just gave me a really big perspective of how I deal with people because when it comes to my sister, you, we have to care for her. We have to teach her so many times how to learn how to tie her shoes. And it's, you know, it's a process. You have a child for the rest of your life, even as an adult. And um that's uh that's a huge responsibility. At least it makes you think like what your next steps are gonna be and um how do you organize your day? Like I can't, you know, I was still living with my parents, like, oh, you gotta stay home and take care of your sister, you gotta stay with Lisa. Uh, you couldn't make all these plans. And eventually, you know, I had to leave my parents' house just so that I can learn what that independent and um that lifestyle is just being by myself. I couldn't rely on them because I know me me and my older sister, we both know that one day our parents are not going to be here and it's going to be our responsibility to take care of her. So I have to make that sacrifice again in my life. And um, I think, yeah, <laughs> I think that answers my question. Yeah. So, so how old were you when you left your parents' house? I was 25. So, wow, you were home a bit later, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I didn't go away for school. I stood in, I stood in the city. Okay, so stayed in the city for school. Um, when you made the decision at 25, was it a difficult decision to make, right? Because we have the pragmatic side of our brain that's like, I need independence. At some point, I'm going to have to step in again and be a caregiver. So let me go spread my wings. That's the prag- you know, pragmatic side. But then there's that emotional side as well and the connection and a sense of obligation to family, which sometimes that they can put that pressure on us, whether it's mm-hmm. deliberate or, or, or subconscious. So did you feel any guilt or did you have any trepidation about it? No, because I knew that this is an opportunity in my life that I will never get back again. And I had to come in with, I had to come in with a resilient attitude towards it. Like I can't cry about it now. Like I can cry about it later, but I have to wait for that later to come because I need to focus. I needed to focus on like what I was doing. So when I moved out, I was DJing, I was promoting. I had a day job working down in Wall Street and I had the the business. So it was just a lot. But my main focus is like, I need to establish myself. I need to know what responsibilities is because um something I did not mention earlier, my dad's a superintendent. So we grew up never paying rent. Mm. I didn't know what, you know, I never saw my parents have to struggle like, oh my God, we got to pay the rent. And I know that that's something that a lot of households actually grow up with, seeing their parents going through that 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 stress. And I never got to see that, let alone experience it or what, you know, emotionally, it just never hit me. And I knew that, God forbid anything would happen to my parents, I would at least want to have some type of experience what it is to have to pay your rent, your bills and electricity and, you know, make sacrifices. So I had to leave my parents' house. That was the only way. But did having a sister with special needs, did that inform your decision to stay home as well for school? No, I actually stayed home for school because while I was in high school, my older sister was in college. Mm-hmm. She went She went away. She went to CW Post in Long Island. And I, anytime I would have a long weekend or a week off, I was experiencing college while I was in high school. So I saw the party life. I saw everything. And I saw the student loan debt that they cured. I was like, I don't want this. 
Mm-hmm. And I got to experience it. So I was just like, I'll stay in the city. I'll work. I got paid to stay in the city. So it was a better plan for me. Gotcha. So when you got to school, though, even though you decided to to stay local and stay at home, having had all these interests, what studies were you actually pursuing? Well, that's when, right when I was about to graduate from high school, I, as I mentioned earlier, I thought I was going to be a fashion designer. And when it came to applying, I did not know if that's actually what I wanted to do. And I ended up realizing, excuse me, I did it. Um, it was pointed out to me that I was more interested in the business of fashion than the fashion of fashion. So I went for marketing management and I went to City Tech. They both, they had a program for marketing management and fashion marketing. So I, I said, let me do the marketing management just in case if I do decide that I want to switch over, I'm already taking those classes, but I continue pursuing marketing management because it it was just more intriguing. And I did realize, I did have a professor that uh, was a director of the fashion marketing department and I took a class with her and I realized, yeah, marketing is what I actually should be studying, even though I love fashion. And what was your, uh, chosen route once you get out of school? Like, what did you start with in your career to kind of kick your profession off? I honestly didn't even think I was going to use my marketing career after I graduated. I went through so much when it came to college. I have ended up having to switch schools because halfway, right when I was about to complete my associates at City Tech, um, I was just going through a lot of family issues. My sister was recently pregnant. Um, It was just a lot going on. So I ended up failing one of my classes. And City Tech was not giving me financial aid for the next semester. So I went to drop all my classes. And when I dropped all my, I thought I dropped all my classes. When I went to register for the next semester, I ended up finding out my class, I was still in all my classes. I failed all my classes and I had a bill with them. I had to appeal everything because they were kicking me out and everything got approved from the appeal except me going back to school. So I had to, I lost the whole semester transferring and I lost credit. And ended up going to Bronx Community College to finish my associate's degree. Once I was out from there, I was still working in corporate America. And I did not think I was going to use my marketing degree at all. It was, I want to say, a couple of years. I graduated in 2013. So it took about five years before I started actually doing marketing. And I didn't even realize I was doing marketing until it, it, I was like a year in. and. Um, I had strengthened my graphic design skills, um, my website design skills, and I was just learning so much about um, front-end coding. And over the last four or five years, that's where I structured myself and my marketing department and my marketing skills. And I realized, wow, I am actually using my degree. (laughs) So what job were you doing in corporate America? Okay, well, it started, um, I was at News Corp. Uh, I was working the concierge there, and that's where I met my career mentor, Shazia. I love her. She has taught me so many things. From there, I actually left to try to. Um, I was I left to work with a music. Uh, produ- excuse me, not a music session. Their uh, music entertainment group. That um, how do you? I'm trying to say this in English. <laughs> They're a Latin community for DJs, and I went in to do marketing for them. So I was being their marketing director, their admin assistant, and uh, I took a pay cut to try to launch off everything A-bar in the legal aspect. And it was just a fail. So after six months, I ended up leaving and 
went to work at a rehab center. I was there until they laid me off because they were losing funds. So they were closing down the facility. From there, uh, once I was laid off, my career mentor called me back. And she was like, hey, are you still unemployed? And I was like, yeah, I am. She's like, I have an interview at this, this place that I'm working. So it was at Time Warner. I started working at Time Warner in the conference center. So I was doing, I was preparing conference meetings for internal and external for like LinkedIn, um, for HBO, because they were in the building or CNN, whenever they had any internal meetings. It was really cool. And I got to actually launch off my culinary experience there with all the chefs. More, it was my second time in a kitchen, but um, it was actually working with the staff and preparing the menus, preparing the name tags for plated dinners or things like that. And I learned so many things about ingredients because there was two huge commercial kitchens. And I was really cool with my colleagues and stuff. So they would always teach me, even for Christmas, me and my boss, we prepared um, a whole banquet, a breakfast banquet for uh, the entire staff. But after there, um, my career mentor called me again. Uh, I want to say it was like about eight months later. And she's like, hey, I just called for an opportunity to open up a concierge department in Wall Street. I need a manager. So her and I both went through the walkthrough. That building was actually affected by Sandy. So they remodeled the entire lobby and they wanted to introduce a concierge service. So I came in with her assuming that she was going to stay. But she was only preparing me to leave me there. And two months later, she left. She actually went to work for um, Shutterstock. And she was trying to drag me. <laughs> she was trying to drag me with her over there. But I actually ended up staying at um, the building on Wall Street, 32 Old Sib. And then the building got sold. So the new company that came in and took over our contract, they were making too many drastic changes that I felt like I was being demoted. And without them actually telling me, so I started looking for another job and ended up at a synchrony financial right before they went public and they were separating from GE. So I helped them throughout that entire transition. And then after they finished um, uh, trading and going public, uh, they offered me another position to be a project manager in the IT department. And that was like a whole nother planet to me because I felt like I did not know what I was doing, but I learned so much in that one year that I spent in Synchrony. So being at Synchrony, it was a contract. Um, after that, I actually spent almost a year and a half without work. And it was super difficult for me to find a job. I was also in a very toxic relationship. I did get my certification to be a Spanish interpreter translator at the core. Um, but then uh, once I finally did get a job, it was at with Luteca. It's a contemporary, modern uh, Mexican furniture company. So I was helping them with everything from logistics to shipping to picking up their kids when they needed to because they were we were just a team of four. But it was so far for me. It was all the way up in Dobbsbury and the commute was crazy. From there, uh, I ended up starting to look for another job and I ended up in Brooklyn. Um, I love Brooklyn. <laughs> it's like my hometown when it comes to careers. I ended up going back to Brooklyn and working for a real estate company. But um, that was a really toxic place to work at. And unfortunately, I got let go from there in a very illegal way, <laughs> which I could talk about now because the statute of limitations are clear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, but I actually got fired. I got fired. While on a day that I called out and they actually came to my house and it was like 8 p.m. at night. 
Wait, I'm sorry. What happened? Yeah. <laughs> I got let go. I got let go for, um, I, I was just too tech savvy and they were unorthodox. So it was just a clash with me and him. And he liked me so much, but, um, he wanted to get a new, actually, I, if I would have went to work that day, I would have went into work to meet the new assistant that he hired and got fired on the spot, but I called out sick. And, um, they came to my house that evening, the other assistant that he had, and I was fired on my block at around 8, 9 PM. I actually recorded the whole thing. The good thing about getting fired, I was actually wasn't fired. He got me a job at his, um, law at the, his attorney's law firm. So I ended up studying the following week and that was just an experience of itself. I was happy when I first walked in because. It was everything that I knew as a notary. I filed divorces. So it was just preparing summons, complaints, motions, and things like that, serving. I was just ecstatic. I'm like, finally, I'm in a, I'm in a law firm. I've been wanting to experience this for God knows how many years. And it only took about two, a month for me to just realize that I was in a more toxic place than I was in the last. <laughs> and that, um, being there, because I, I, they were trying to, so they had to take me with the same salary. And that was the issue, um, which was the reason why I got let go. I want to say about five months later, they were trying to promote me within the three, the first three weeks, but they were not trying to increase my salary. And I was not going to take the position. It was for accounting. I was like, no, um, but it was really toxic. It was, it, you know, that, that I can go on with the stories that happened in that career, in that workplace. But after I like got let go from the law firm, I, uh, I took it as a sign from God because I had been praying for time and asking for time and I just need time and time and time. And I actually got it when I got let go that day. It was April 3rd, 2019. I will never forget. And I manifested, uh, Proverbs 31, 25. I, they called me into that conference room. They read me that letter. And in my head, I was just like, thank you, God. I felt like a weight lifting off from my shoulders. And I've been solo with everything Abar since. And it's been great. It's been busy, but it's been great. So what year was that? That was 2019. Okay. So let's let's unpack this a little bit because people, there will be people who will, will hear this and be like, oh my God, she was all over the place, right? Like, <laughs> you know, when we think of, a natural progression of career. You go to school, you get into your career, you work, you try to climb the ladder at that job. If you have an unfortunate experience where you do get laid off or it doesn't work out, you go somewhere else and you try to make it work there. But there are not many people who have had the experience that you have of so many jumps and sort of working in a lot of, you know, different areas and types of companies. And particularly what I find interesting is most, most children of immigrant families, right? That what is really instilled in us is you get a good job, you stay at that job. You mentioned your job, your dad was a super, right? So like mm-hmm. you stay on that job as long as you possibly can, get your savings together, your retirement together until it's time for you not to work anymore. So were you when you were in this experience of bouncing around a bit, where were you emotionally and psychologically? Did you feel like I'm failing at this career thing? Or were you empowered to just say, this is not working for me. Let me find something else. So I would like to start off saying I started working when I was 13 as mm-hmm. a secretary. Literally the Monday after graduating eighth grade, I started working as a secretary of my, uh, as a secretary in the rectory of my church. And I started my legal experience when I was 16. So it's been, it, I, I lasted, I want to say the most 
four years in a place and at least one year max. That's the minimum. It's emotionally, I was just, honestly, I've just been a hustler all my life. So my dad, although he's a super, he also had his night job. So four o'clock, he would leave and he'll work as a, a custodian worker downtown. And he'll come home like at one in the morning. So in me, I, I was just always, this, I wasn't worried about if I was doing something wrong or right. I've always been like, you can call anybody I've worked for. You would always hear something good. Um, I never let my emotions come into like a place to ever make me feel bad. I always find the good in everything. I like to say where there's a will, there's a way. So I was, while I was working all these day jobs, I was in the back doing immigration. I was also DJing. I was also promoting and any little, any little side gigs that I could get, I would get. My, my thing was just, I need to take this time to build my credibility and experience whatever it takes. Right. So you, so all this time you're working on passion projects as well. Um, which I think a lot of people, particularly in New York, have that story of like, I've got my day thing, but I'm building this thing on the side. Where I find that it goes off the rails for people is when they're in a toxic day job, they don't have the energy to be doing anything. Like you get off work and it's like, I just need to decompress. I need my weekend to recharge my battery, embrace myself for Monday again. So how are you able to have the fortitude uh, and the wherewithal to continue to do all these other things when the day situation may not have been great? The day situation was not great, nor was it at home because I was still in that toxic relationship and I was living with my partner. So the only time I really had to myself was that one and a half hour train ride. Mm. And it was in the morning and in the evening. After that, I would come home to more toxicity. Toxicity. I can't even pronounce it. Um, but it was, you know, I, I, my boss was screaming at me and I work and then I'll come home and my partner was screaming at me. So the only thing that really grounded me, honestly, was God. I, I, I'm, I'm a prayer warrior and prayer is what helped me. I running to the Bible, looking, I would cry it out the moments that I could. But if there's one thing my mentor taught me, and I actually wrote this, uh, this story, it's part of my story of my novel. Um, one of the first things she's taught me during my first relationship when I had a really bad breakup, she pulled me to the side because that day I wanted to work. I had no makeup. I didn't care about anything. Like you could see the emotion on me. I was pale. And she's like, you don't have any makeup on. She pointed it all out. She's like, what's going on? So I told her and she says, I'm going to teach you this one thing. And I need you to take it with you for life. When it comes to your work, keep all your emotions in the outside world. This is work. And this is a whole different world for you. Once you outside that door, you want to cry. You want to do whatever you want. Do it. But don't bring that into the workplace. I will never forget that. And I never did. And the next day I came on with my happy face. And it's been one of my rule of thumbs that I actually teach my interns about. So talk to me a bit more about this toxic relationship, right? Because we keep it all the way real on this show. Mm -hmm, so how mm -hmm. long, how long were you with this person? Two years and 20 days. Oh, you know, down to the day. <laughs> yes. I actually planned, I had to plan the breakup. Um, we, I started dating the person in December, 2016, and I broke up with them December 20, December 22nd at two in the morning on the 2018. 
I will never forget because it was 20 days apart from our anniversary day, but I had started planning the breakup in September because I realized I was in a really effed up situation and my safety matter. And I didn't know how extreme the situation could get. So it took me about three, four months to plan the breakup. And I did it through a letter because I, I just couldn't put the words together. Um, that this, I learned so much from that relationship. Um, the pri- the main reason I walked out was because it was just becoming more of a financial burden to me. Um, my ex-partner left me in $10,000 of debt when it came to rent. And it was just so much that I was going through. Um, he was narcissistic and, um, nobody liked him. Nobody liked him. And I was so blinded until God came and removed the blinds from me. And I realized I was, I had no friends around me. My family was not around me. And all I had was this person that did not care about me. They cared only about themselves and what I could provide for them. And I really had to look at my self value and do something about it. Otherwise I was going to lose myself. It, ironically, um, the my ex-partner edited my novel when it first came out, and he literally repeated the same story from my novel, just 10 times worse. Mm. So left in all this debt at the end of 2018, but you got fired in 2019. So talk to me about, <laughs> like, because it's one thing that you have to put yourself back together, right? After dealing particularly with an abusive partner, emotionally and mentally and all of that. But then there's just a very real financial situation that leaves you holding back, right? So mm-hmm. what, when, I, I presume you felt some level of freedom when you finally got out, but how did you manage to pull yourself up financially when you were left with all the debt? Especially because, I mean, how many months was it between that breakup and you being terminated? Well, we broke up in December, but he actually, I allowed him to continue living here at my place for the next two months. So he didn't leave till mid-February. And that was just because I, I'm, I'm, I like to, I'm a woman of my word. And I always told him I would never kick you out. Um, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't feel comfortable putting someone on the streets, not knowing if they're going to rest their hand, their head on a pillow or on a rock. So, um, I gave him all the time that he needed. And it wasn't until about a month and a half later that I got fired. So at the time before I got fired, I was coming out of my debt by myself because I had less of an expense. I did not, you know, I didn't have to feed him. I didn't, I'm spending less money. So I'm, I'm, and I was also more in control of my money. He was in control of my finances for a really large part of the relationship. Um, when I got fired, I thought I lost it all. I honestly did not know what to do. And that I didn't even know if I was going to get approved for unemployment. But that month of April, um, I spent it praying and trying to figure something out. And on the third week, I want to say, um, it, I, through prayer, I, I realized, uh, I, I felt like God was telling me you need to fast. So I decided to take a whole day out and try to listen to God and see what kind of fast he wanted me to do. And I ended up writing it down and I decided I was going to fast for three days in silence just to get a word from him. I was going to have one meal a day. I was going to cover all my mirrors so I would have no no self-reflection or um, idolize myself. I was off social media. Um, what else? I could only have water and one joint a day. And in those three days, I said, since I'm not going to be speaking to anybody, I also had to go out 
and um, work out. So there were little times that I actually had to, uh, that I came across another human being and it, it was a moment of communication. And all I did was just smile because I couldn't talk. But <laughs> it was really interesting. In those three days, I ended up writing a book on fasting and silence. And um, after I after I came out of the fast, not only did I come out with the book, but I also got into Airbnb. And um, I started Airbnb in my place. And that's what dragged me out of the hole. Unfortunately, I did... Um, I didn't get to stay as an Airbnb super host because I started in April or beginning of May. And then by January, I got sued by my landlord. So I had to bring my listing down. Okay. So let's, for people who live in other places, let's add context here, right? Because those of us who live in the New York City metro area know why you got sued. But people Mm -hmm. in other places don't understand, right? So a bit of a business lesson for folks like when Airbnb really popped off. At the time, I was like a startup lawyer, right? So people would come to me all the time like, oh, can you help me set up an LLC because I'm going to be Airbnb being my place and I want a separate you know, business for that. And my first question was like, are you able to do that like at your building? And people would be like, I'm not really sure, but it's not a doorman building. So I'm just going to do it and get to this money. So there were people who were doing that for the place that they live. And there were also people who were leasing, you know, who had the credit and the resources were leasing a separate place just for Airbnb. And as with everything, everybody got hit. Landlords got hit. The city got hit, whatever. So then it became, oh, you're hoteling, right? You're you're doing something that actually you don't have the right to do in the five boroughs or what have you. And everybody started to to crack down. The city started to crack down. Lawsuits were flying. Landlords were doing your exact situation, right? So that's that's the foundation for how you ended up not being able to be a super even, even though, even though when I decided to do Airbnb, I looked through all the regulations and I saw that New York City allows it. If you stay in the in an apartment, you can do it if you live in the apartment. If you live there, yes. And you give them access to every room without locking any doors. That's exactly how I got into Airbnb, but my landlord was not with it. He did not care. And he still had that power over me. So I still had to bring my listing down. I prov- I try to provide letters from um, my guests that had, that had they became my friends. Um, and no, it did not work. I, we're still, we still have one more court date before it closes. But the ruling, um, which is what my attorney told me, will be that they're just going to come visit me for the next six months, at least once a month to make sure I'm not airbnb which is crazy, right? Because yes, there is that exception that if you are in the in the property, that it's different. You're, you're not hoteling because you're there with them. But we all know the power that, that New York City landlords wield, right? Mm-hmm. So so you had this, this side hustle, which we all know, super lucrative, particularly if you're in the city, um, to help you kind of find your footing financially as well and get out of debt. That goes away. So what did you do next? The pandemic hit. <laughs> <laughs> Everything happened so fast. The pandemic hit, and um, this is why we're still waiting for a court date because this was back in January 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, honestly, I was panicking at first because I thought they were gonna evict me from my place. But I'm, you know, the pandemic helped so many people in so many different ways, and while it hurt others, you know, it really benefited me um, in figuring out what I was gonna do next. So I realized that. While I was Airbnb, I had people on days that I uh, I didn't have any guests 
that would come over just to take photo shoots or do a music video shoot in my spa. And I decided, well, you know what, since I can't Airbnb anymore, and while I also like being at home and Airbnb takes away from that because I would have, um, you know, like give them their space and stuff. So I was like, I can actually be at home and I will just put my place up as a studio on peer space. And throughout the entire pandemic, you know, like I really focused on remodeling um, certain areas of the house. I'm, I'm still like working on little projects, but um, it, it's, it's way better than Airbnb. That's what I could say. I love it. Um, I, you know, I was able to really break down uh, the A-Bar experience, which is this experience I, I host um, here in my apartment of a plant-based experience. And um, it's, it's super fun. It's just I, I realize every time I have people come over here, they, they're filled with this energy and they never want to leave. And it's just a piece of the sanctuary I create. And um, Airbnb led to that. So had I not gone through that, um, I wouldn't be where I'm at. But I will say I fell in love with the experience of hosting at Airbnb. And I got I had so many people reach out to me that I'm part I partnered up with someone and I will be opening up another Airbnb. So got it. So what I find interesting, though, I must say, is having had this experience with your landlord specific to Airbnb, but now moving into a different endeavor that still involves utilizing your space for something other than living there. Did you have any nervousness around doing that, considering that he put you through the ringer with the Airbnb thing? No, because I've, um, my, I actually, this is my private office. So this is where I meet my clients and it's the same thing. Um, you know, even, even if I decided to pick up the camera and tell somebody, Hey, come over to my place and I'm going to shoot you here. That's not, I'm, I'm not renting. I'm literally just using my space to work. So uh, I made sure I covered every T, dotted every I when it came to that. So tell me more about the other things that come under the Everything A-Bar umbrella as it exists today. Um, well, we have my book. Yes, let's talk so. about the books. <laughs> let's talk about the book. And it tells the story of my first relationship and the relationship of how I found God in my life. And it's uh, it's called I Fell for New York's Finest because I was dating a cop. And it's a really, um, uh, it's a page turn. It's an emotional book. I, uh, I unfortunately, and this is a story, I, I tell it with pride, even though some people be like, oh, that's really emotional. Like, I'm so sorry. And honestly, I really don't, not that I don't care for the pity, but it's more of a miracle. And um, I like to call that day miracle day, but I had lost a child in that relationship. And it really shaped the person I became. And it's also the reason why I got closer to God. But had that not happened to me, I wouldn't be who I am at mm-hmm. all. And that's why I embrace those moments. But um, that is, I felt for New York's finest, the page turner. Everybody loves this book. They always cry. And they're like, I, they actually really get mad at the, the main character because she was just such a weak and naive person at the time. Um, thankfully she's not that person anymore. <laughs> um, and then there's Fasting in Silence. This is the book I actually wrote in three days. I designed it and everything, and it's a three-part book. So the first part is about a hundred pages and it just speaks on the fast. And then in the middle it's a journal in case you want to do the fast. Um, one of the um one of the requirements for the fast is that you have to journal each day. And then in the back, it has the introduction to the book I've been writing since 2017, which is my model, Change Your Setting. 
Uh, the subtitle is Take Control of Your Life, but it's more about, it's about harnessing self-awareness in the body, the mind, and the spirit, and how to be in control of that and not letting your external or internal thoughts, um, external environment or internal thoughts affect uh, your individual being and maintaining a homeostasis in those three areas. So that um, that's, that's Fascinating Silence. And then my last book, this is the second part to the series of The High Chronicles. And this one's called The Word. If, are you a J. Cole fan? I know a few songs, so go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, um, this 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 book is actually, um, it got inspired in during the pandemic. So for 420, Everybody was so excited, at least prior to the pandemic, everybody was so excited about 420 because it was going to be 420, 2020. And everybody, I, I want to say even from the 90s, we're waiting for this day. And we were in, in quarantine. So I actually lost two uncles um, to COVID. And while I was grieving, I was listening to um, the song by Six Black and J. Cole, Pretty Little Fears. Yes. And to me, it was God talking to me about the pretty little fears of COVID and how there's, you know, like um, if there's one thing I like to teach people about the brain is how stress is produced and what chemicals it produces in the brain and how it shuts down your immune system and it can make you vulnerable to, you know, getting a disease or getting ill. And I like that. This is why I'm always telling people, you know, practice yoga, release your stress, bring it down. Don't let it affect you because if it affects you, it affects your body, it affects your mind, it affects your spirit. So um, listening to the song, I felt like it was God talking to me. And when I was listening to it, I heard J. Cole's part and I was smoking and crying. And I realized he's talking about a girl when he's talking about these pretty little fears. And I started, I looked at the joint and I was just like, you're the pretty little fear in my life. So in the book, I write about what our hands have created and what we do with our hands. And it's um, the, the the middle part of it. I illustrated in words and pictures uh, his verse. And, oops, sorry. I illustrated his verse in the middle pictures. And then I speak about the things that we used to do with our hands prior to, um, you know, having an, uh, electronics and, you know, writing and DJing and planting and cultivating. And um, it's really a story about, the it's a story within a story within a story because I started off with the word and how words are really important even though I'm referenced uh I start referencing it from the word of the bible and using John there's there's so many small little hidden meanings in this book that I have to read it to people and show it to them and explain it and break it down because if you just buy it you look at it you're like okay this is cool this is interesting but you wouldn't know but the, the one the one cool thing about this book is that I have a QR code and there is an audio video that goes with this. So you'll hear the sound, uh, the soundtrack in the back and um, you could actually go and read the story. Um, hear the hear his verse and read along with the story. Understood. And this is the word. <laughs> so let's talk about loss a little bit because I, you have weaved that into your story at, at a few points and how it has prompted you in certain areas. Um, and this is also in your, you know, your bio online of losing a child. And how that really prompted your spiritual journey in a way. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, I can. So for, I want to say early 17, around there, um, I guess I want to say when we started going to the gynecologist, 
Uh, my mother suffered from fibroids and cysts, and she had to go through a couple of med- uh, medical procedures in order to get pregnant. So um, that was that's hereditary, and I always feared that I would never be able to get pregnant. So when I found out that I was pregnant, it was actually a day before graduating college, and it was just like bittersweet because I didn't know if I wanted if I was happy or I wasn't. And um, I had two funerals that day. It was just a lot. Um, I was really excited, but I knew I also wasn't ready, but I felt like it was, you know, God's timing. So I can't question the moment. I just got to go with it. Um, I don't want to share too much because you could read the story in the novel. Yes. We want people to buy the book. So don't, don't give them the whole story. (laughs) It's, it's, It's better when you read it, but, um, it was, I actually gave birth. Um, I was five months pregnant. They were trying to, uh, they had suggested so many things. They were like, you know, it's going to be inevitable. My cervix was actually um, opening sooner than it was supposed to. And it's because I had an infection in my placenta, which was causing me to dilate. And that's what caused the early birth. But they were trying to actually, we we tried to do a cerclage, which is a, a surgical pr- uh, procedure where they close your cervix up. But um, once I was laid out on the operation table, we were running the chance that they would break my water. And I told them that that was like a no-go. Like, we're not going to do that. So uh, it took about a week after that until I actually went into labor. And um, I was I was in the process for like about four days in Lenox Hill. I, if I'm not mistaken, I was still I was in the same room as Beyonce. So mm. <laughs> that was that was really cool. <laughs> Um, but it was really emotional. And honestly, I, there's one thing I always, I, I'm always open to new experiences and there's certain weird things that I, I want to experience, but birth was one of them. Um, without any epidural, without nothing, I wanted to feel what natural birth was like. And it was very painful. Um, <laughs> uh, and that, ex- that experience, it was, it was, I don't know, it was very interesting. Um, I showed emotion, but at the same time, I didn't because I wasn't question. I didn't want to question what was happening. I knew that one day in the future, God will reveal it to me. And Lord and behold, he did. I realized I would have been, unfortunately, very miserable. I would have been dealing with so much stress. I was with the wrong person. You know, like I found out things while I was pregnant that it just caused so much stress. And the stress is what um, really caused me to go into labor and have an early miscarriage. But um, it's an experience that I am so thankful for because, you know, I've met so many women that, you know, they hear my story and they're just like, oh, wow, you're so, I actually has one, one person told me one time, they're like, you know how I know you're crazy? Because you told me that story with a smile on your face. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it's just, it's, it's really humbling when you can share light with other people when they're going through a very dark moment. So when it comes to that loss, I, I take it with a grain of salt, and I know that one day I'm going to have an answer that's actually going to comfort me and give me closure. And I got that over time. I just let time do its thing. And, um, yeah, that's um, that's how I deal with the loss. And has that changed at all in the time that we're in now that you've lost? I think you mentioned two uncles and an aunt that you've lost to COVID, right? So yeah. that is... When COVID impacts a family, it's devastating. But when it impacts a family over and over again, uh, it's something that is hard to even fathom. So how have you been able to remain grounded in the midst of all this loss in a pandemic that's not even over? You got to, you know, I'll say Sam Cooke has a song. It says, keep moving on. 
I love that song and I listen to it because if there's one thing I've always been that I write a lot about is time and we have no control over time. I feel like we also don't really understand what time is. And um, when it comes to dealing with situations of life, like that of loss, you have to give yourself that time. So whenever I endure a loss, um, I started practicing this last year. I give myself three days, three days for the spirit, two days for the mind, one day for the body. Um, And I, I, I take it like that just to help myself heal. Because there's nothing, nothing in our power that we can do about a loss, but just let time do its thing and heal. Um, you know, some people like to get revenge, but regardless, that's just bringing on more issues to yourself. So I, I like to just let time do its thing. If I need to take more days, you know, I just become really self-aware of what's happening. Try not to question why it happened. If it's, you know, something that I can't answer. and um. Some, just even sit in silence. I, I Ever since I did that fast of three days in silence, I, I constantly find myself in silence a lot just because I, I since I speak with so many people and I deal with people, there's so many different opinions and thoughts that are in my head and I need to um, detox it and you know clear my thoughts to make sure I'm not self-sabotaging myself or you know putting myself in a deeper situation than what I'm already in. Or enduring. Mm-hmm. Understood. So describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. The time that I was extraordinary on an ordinary day, being that we're in the midst of COVID, it's very difficult to find an efficient to marry you. Um, and that's something that I've kind of, be, I actually became uh, I became an efficient in New York State to marry people recently. But I had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Uh, a couple of weeks ago when I had to take my entire place, break it down and create an entire setup and host um, a plated dinner, four, four course plated dinner for eight people and marry them in my bedroom <laughs> and uh, host a dinner as well in my bedroom and a little cocktail hour in the entire space. I got my interns to work and help as catering staff. And while we were preparing for this during the beginning of the day, I was so stressed because the room wasn't ready. We were still working on house projects. Um, We still had to prepare the food for the dinner. And I just, I honestly thought that everything was going so wrong. But it wasn't until the next day that I received a phone call from the two brides. It was actually two um, two women that were getting married. And they were, they were beyond beyond thankful and they just thought everything was so extraordinary because they actually got married in my bedroom and it's just a transition that I was able to provide for them and just change up the entire place like it just looked completely different you would never even think you're in the Bronx in an apartment and um I I that's one of the most extraordinary things I've done recently so what do you say to the people who are like you're just doing too much. Like, you're, you know, you've got all these different talents, all these services that you're providing. That's a whole lot. You need to focus, focus a little bit more on one thing. What do you say to them? They don't manage my calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you do not manage my calendar. So you would not know what I, how I manage my day. I, I feel like um, a lot of people see that I do a lot of things. And sometimes, um, like, oh, if she could do it, I could do it too. And it's just like, no, it's, 
it looks easier than it is, but um, you really have to have a heart of gold when it comes to dealing with people because uh, I, I take on, you know, doing immigration, I take on a lot of people's stress, um, their emotions, their worries, their fears, and I, I hold myself responsible and accountable for that because I'm helping them through a process. So uh, it's easier than what it looks, but honestly, uh, I do all these things and I manage myself by keeping a calendar. And I learned that from working with the Jew because he was a millionaire and he had a million things to do all the time. And I was the one that managed his calendar. So this is why I'm very thankful for all the experiences I've had because they've helped shape me as an individual. So where do you see yourself in five years? Five years. I see myself um, producing because it's something that I'm actually getting into, both music and um, film. I also see myself... If it's in God's plan, probably married with a kid or two. Um, <laughs> and probably with another skill set that is going to intrigue me within the next couple of years that I don't know about, but still building the brand. Um, I do plan also to hopefully have a studio one day where it's actually public and I can open it up to my, I, I have an internship program. I didn't speak about that, but I work with high school students. So I want to have a, a, a bigger place where I can accept more students for the program and um, teach them the things that I do. That's what I do in the internship. I, um, there, I accept junior and senior students from the tri-state area and we meet every other Sunday from October to June. And I teach them how to hustle teach them a little bit about everything that I do, whatever they intrigued in. And I also let them just express themselves to with whatever they have, either an interest in venting or even opening up a business. I've offered them that, the, the opportunity that once they graduate, I'll pay for their LLC if they want to actually open up their business and they're 100% serious about it. And I had one student last um, in the last uh, semester. That's great. So where can people find you online? Abar.fun. Because if it's not fun, I'm not doing it. It's not .com. <laughs> Got it. Abar.fun. Well, yes. listen, you you may you may <laughs> you may take the record for the 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 myriad of experiences that you've had um and the myriad of work that you do in terms of December 26th or guests. Most most of our guests juggle a lot of different things. I think you might take the cake. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> And if somebody takes it from me, please, I'd love to meet them. <laughs> so listen to our to our listeners, you know what to do. If you've enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, tell somebody about it. If you are interested uh, further in the services that Linda provides, check her out at abar.fun as well, or on social media, because we're all around on social media also. Everything.abar. It got it. Everything.abar. <laughs> Uh, and you know what to do once you finish liking, sharing and subscribing and all that great stuff and checking out Linda's work. Remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 